0: Well done. Probably just a small taste of what choir might look like here going forward. Really looking forward to uh, choir season. If you're interested in that, uh, please see Pastor Weiler. And uh, as we're blessed through uh, through great song, great song. If you would, please turn to Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three, verse thirteen. As we begin today, rather than picking up where we left off last week in Luke chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3 to observe this occasion of Jesus' baptism. Uh, That is because Matthew contains virtually all the information that Luke does and even provides some extra uh, details and information that Luke just chose to omit. You know, the four Gospels is what we've Spoken before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not carbon copies of one another. They're not identical. They're parallel accounts of the same events of the life of Christ. And they complement one another. So they're not identical. The fact is that all four Gospels do contain this event. Jesus' baptism. And that just demonstrates how significant this is. And taken together, they paint a complete picture of precisely what was seen that day, uh, the day God the Father confirmed pub- publicly the identity of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And as we've been studying you know, the ministry of John the Baptizer, we've seen that up until this point, you know, the people weren't exactly sure what to expect with the Christ. Uh, some even speculated that John was the Christ. Even the Pharisees asked him directly, Are you the Christ? To which he said, I am not. And we should recognize that that John had competently executed his prophetic office. How was that? He prepared people for the arrival of Christ. He was very effective. Luke 3.15 tells us that John's preaching, it left the people in a state of what? Expectation. They were waiting to see what would happen? So John fulfilled his ministry. He became that voice crying out in a wilderness, the one that was paving the path for the Lord. He fulfilled his ministry. The Apostle Paul gave a similar charge to Timothy, if you remember, in 2 Timothy 4 5, when he told him, You know, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. The substance of John the Baptist's ministry now is complete. The substance of it. He finished well. This may be the reason that Luke referred to uh, the imprisonment by Herod, that John the Baptist was put into prison uh, out of chronological order. He he provided that before Jesus was even baptized, if you look back to Luke chapter 3 uh, in verse 21. Uh, This also ensures that that Luke's gospel is not in woodenly chronological order. Uh, The events in Luke are generally in consecutive order, as Luke promised Theophilus an orderly account of the life of Christ. We should also point out that John's focus resided in pointing others to the Messiah. That was the substance of his ministry. His ministry wasn't about John. John. He was only a messenger who even tells his own disciples, the disciples of John, he said to them, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's John 3.30. You know, it's healthy as we begin here to concede, to at least acknowledge that uh, we evangelicals sometimes make a bit of too much about ministries named after men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 warns us against that. When people were naming themselves after Apollos and of Cephas and of Christ, there was division by the names that people were calling themselves after other than Christ. And I, I uh, referencing theologians, those preachers, those teachers, who've been helpful to our understanding of Scripture, that has merit. I, I very much appreciate Uh, the men who've gone before us and helped us to learn. You can quickly determine a person's theological bent just by asking them, you know, who do you like as a theologian? Who do you like to listen to? Who do you like to read? And you can discover quite quickly what a person believes by them replying, you know, I admire Chuck Swindoll. Or I admire, well, it's Creflo Dollar. You can tell very quickly where they land. So that is helpful. It is helpful. But folks, to establish ministry franchises, franchises on the allure, the talent of one preacher, that's dangerous. That is dangerous. Churches now, folks, they are streaming from hundreds of miles away a particular preacher who people want to hear. Hundreds of miles away. Because apparently no one locally is able to teach or preach the Word of God. Perhaps no one can speak as eloquently as the man who's on the video screen. But cleverness of speech, it was never to be a prerequisite for preaching or teaching, lest the cross be made void, Paul said of himself. And and the progress of the gospel, the, the expansion of Christ's church, it's never hinged on the magnetism of one preacher. One alluring preacher. According to Jesus, John the Baptist, he was the greatest prophet to ever arise in Israel. Now, folks, that's saying something. They had Isaiah, they had Jeremiah, they had the minor prophets, they had Moses. That's saying something that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that ever arose. Of course, his, his purpose, his ministry of identifying the Christ was the greatest. Paul, he was the greatest evangelist that we know of. They both, John and Paul, they fulfilled their ministries. They were each martyred for their ministries. But the kingdom of God continued to expand because they didn't make the mistake that their ministries were built around them. As men, their ministries were established purely upon the identity of Christ, the chief cornerstone, and by equipping others to preach and teach also. 1 Corinthians 3 7. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. So, can you perhaps sense why uh, Luke puts John the Baptist down as, as going into prison even before? Jesus is baptized. He is put into prison. um, After the first couple chapters have put so much focus on this John, right? John the Baptist as the forerunner, leading up to the Messiah. And Luke seems to be dispelling any notion that this continues on as some kind of co-ministry. Or that perhaps Jesus was dependent upon John in some way for an ongoing ministry. Jesus wasn't. What happened to John? Imprisoned. Beheaded. John was great. John was great. He fulfilled his ministry. But this baptism event signifies Jesus is infinitely greater than any man. So much greater that John says in Luke 3, verse 16, I am not even faithful fit to untie his sandals. One menial task of the lowest servant of a household in this day, the lowliest of servants, was to meet any visitors or the master when they came home and then to untie their sandals and wash the dust off their feet before they entered the home. That was a menial task of the lowliest servant as they met their master at the door. You know, John doesn't imply here that he is the lowliest servant in Jesus' household. He doesn't say, you know, my job is to untie Jesus' sandal as the lowliest servant. John the Baptist insists, I'm not even fit to untie his sandal. Folks, that is humility. That is a man with a right sense of himself greatest prophet ever in Israel. I, John say, says, uh, merely baptize with water. I provide a symbol of repentance. I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit of God. John says, my ministry, it's about Him. It's about Christ. Let's read together the account In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. According to Luke, Jesus here is about 30 years old. Having lived in Galilee since childhood, you know, Jesus now arrives at the Jordan River. So God the Father can inaugurate the ministry of God the Son. His public ministry. You know, Think about that humanly for a second. If an emissary is sent ahead of a diplomat, sent to prepare things, to clear the way, to get uh, uh, the location ready to receive that diplomat or politician um, for a near arrival. Eventually that delegate that goes ahead of, ahead of time is going to have to identify and be there when the, uh, when the politician arrives. We see that all the time, the person that he forecasts. Christ here wouldn't begin his ministry just by going to Jerusalem and bypassing the forerunner. You get what I'm saying? He first would stop to be verified by the forerunner, John the Baptist, who was sent ahead of him. And from the outset, John recognized that that Jesus doesn't need his baptism. John preached a baptism, as we studied previously, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus approached John recognized him as a sinless lamb of God. John, therefore, he he initially, he tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. Instead, John views himself as a sinner, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you are being baptized by me? John didn't have an overinflated ego of himself or his ministry which apparently was a pretty significant one according to scripture. He didn't think a lot of himself. Cuz John realized that he's like everyone else. As James said in chapter 4 of the book of James, but a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Folks, don't misunderstand me. It isn't that John's ministry isn't important. His ministry is extremely important. His ministry is essential to the outworking of God's plan, announcing the arrival of Christ. His ministry is necessary. Your ministry is necessary. Our ministry is necessary. But John is not the Christ, Jesus is the Christ. That's the point of this passage. Jesus is the Christ. There is no other. His identity, it's verified by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that this man is God the Son. This is the one Israel has been waiting for, folks. There's no other. There's no other, as our songs said earlier. Do you realize there are enormous, enormous Sections of religions. Enormous portions of religion existing today that teach we ourselves are also becoming Christ. You realize that? That, that not, Not that Jesus is unique other than He was the first to become like God. According to Mormonism, Jesus came to earth to provide you and me a template meaning a model of how we too can become a God. We can become gods exactly as Jesus did, they say, through our good works. To them, Jesus was not uniquely God's Son, other than that He was the first to be called God's Son. First to achieve God's status. A status that they would say is virtually achievable by any other human. You see that? We could do everything that Jesus can do according to them other than be the first. Because Jesus was the first. That's how they define firstborn. That he was the first in order. He was the first one to have that declared to him. Uh, they make much to be uh, out of man. He makes us, they, they make us to be much more than what we are. John the Baptist didn't have that problem. Somewhat on the flip side of that, in a sense, Jehovah Witnesses make out Jesus to be much less than God, much less than God. This is why their adulterated view of the Bible, their version of the Bible, that is, the New World Translation, says in John one one, according to them, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g. Even in their own version, they print it with a little g to make a point. They're deeming Jesus a God. It's not as much to an attempt to elevate man as it is to diminish Christ to being less than God. They believe Jesus is a created being much more like us than like God. One of their primary websites states, quote, We take Jesus at His word when He said, The Father is greater than I. John 14.22 they cite out of context there. This is what they say, So we do not worship Jesus as we do not believe that He is Almighty God. Jehovah Witnesses reject Jesus as Almighty God. They resist him. Uh, they also do not accept the Holy Spirit as a person. They view the Holy Spirit as an inanimate force of God, like a force field. They hold, sail, reject the Holy Trinity. The Trinity, of course, being a term that Christians use to describe the one true God as he reveals himself in the Bible. Eternally existent as three persons Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. Know this when they come to your door. Know this ahead of time. And and, and be aware, no Christian has ever claimed that the word or term Trinity appears in the Bible. It doesn't. Trinity is a term we use to describe what is seen in the Bible. Our passage today is just one place, the Trinitarian Godhead. It's plainly evident for all to see at the baptism of Christ. We'll get to that in just a moment. Folks, compared to those, John the Baptist clearly sees Jesus as unique. Clearly, uh, in his preaching, all four Gospels uh, record John the Baptist as citing Isaiah 40, verse 3 while saying, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Nobody would have known better than John that Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway, for our God. Those are words of Isaiah. You might not notice it in the English rendering as you turn there. But in, in the Hebrew scripture writings of Isaiah, the word that is used there for Lord, you'll see in four capital letters, right? L-O-R-D. What does that mean? Old Testament. It's the proper name, Yahweh. The covenant name of God. So Isaiah is referring to the Lord is Yahweh the term that Isaiah uses for God is Elohim. You get in the picture there of the source that John the Baptist is using? John is saying, Make ready the arrival of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord our God. There's no mistaking who John is expecting to show up here, right? It's Yahweh It's why he says, you know what, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. As I may note previously, John recognized this God who has come in the flesh, he doesn't need a baptism of repentance. John immediately knows that. He's Yahweh Elohim. He doesn't need my baptism, John is saint. Jesus is not a sinner. God is not a sinner. But in Matthew 3, verse 15, Jesus answering said to John, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John permitted Jesus to be baptized. You know, people, they often wonder about this, kind of looking through this passage. Being God in human flesh, why did the sinless Savior Permit himself to be baptized? Why did he allow himself to be identified with a baptism of repentance that was meant for sinners? That's a fair question. There's a number of valid answers to that. Let me suggest one Jesus, through John's water baptism, allowed himself to be identified with sinners. He identified himself with sinners. I don't know how much simpler it could be. Jesus identified with us in every way, folks. Every way, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 indicates He was tempted every way that we are, yet without sin. That's going to be our topic next week as we move to Luke chapter 4. Where Jesus is tempted in the desert. Where He experiences our temptations. Jesus identified with us on the cross as a sinless Savior as as He bore the crushing weight of sin in His body. His own body. Our sin in His body. He identified with us through suffering physical death. As we suffer physical death because the wages of sin is death. Jesus identified with our anguish as Mary and Martha bemoaned losing their dead brother Lazarus. As Jesus came to comfort them, John uh, 11.35 John tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus identified with us as he experienced the same perpetual rejection of the gospel as he preached it to others. And he mourned, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. You get tired of experiencing rejection as you go out with the gospel? Jesus identifies with that. Jesus identified with his disciples as he too partook in a memorial of remembrance through the bread and the cup prepared for them. Jesus didn't need to take communion. He, he didn't have to have remembrance. He doesn't have a poor memory. He shared the Lord's Supper with them because he identified with them. Why then would he withhold himself from a baptism that was meant for those who are to identify themselves with Him? What leader would command all of His disciples, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, to be baptized if He Himself would not identify with water baptism? I, I tell you this for sure. If He had not been marked out by water baptism, if Jesus had not, there would be contrarians out there saying, I'm not going to be water baptized. Jesus was never water baptized. There's always those. I don't know if we could even, today folks, exhaust all the reasons that Jesus was baptized by John. Why he desired to be identified with this baptism. But I think we can determine his motive. His motive is consistent here as it is throughout the rest of Scripture. Jesus wanted all righteousness to be fulfilled that's his greatest motive is that God's righteousness is preserved all righteousness would be fulfilled including the consummation of every single word of God because John 10.35 assures scripture cannot be broken every single word of God every prophecy by God that has been offered to man will be fulfilled God will not fail, all for the sake of his righteousness. So referencing our scripture reading from earlier in in the Gospel of John chapter 1, John the Baptist as the forerunner declared there in verse 20. This is while he's pointing to Jesus. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he, meaning Jesus, might be manifested to Israel, that means recognized by Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he, meaning God, he who sent me to baptize in water said to me what? He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Then John summarizes, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. God provided John a prophecy. You will see the Spirit descending on him. That's how John would know. That's when the prophecy would be fulfilled. And God's word must be fulfilled. Though their their mothers were related, John didn't know Jesus was the Christ. He wasn't certain of that. Jesus didn't go around during his youth publicizing before his, his confirmation through baptism. He didn't publicize himself as the Christ. This is the public demonstration he is the Christ. By all appearances, Jesus lived just as a man up until this point. So if John had previously met Jesus, which we don't know whether he did or whether he didn't, John lived in the wilderness, John's parents probably died when John was young because they were so elderly when John was born. So we don't know, but we do know that he says that I didn't recognize him. He didn't know for certain. It was only when Jesus came to be baptized in John's baptism and made manifest to Israel through John's baptism that the Holy Spirit confirmed to John the Christ's identity. This was Christ's confirmation to Israel. God had promised John, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. It was at Jesus' baptism that God's word was fulfilled. And, Paul, and John would know uh, the Christ because he would see that Holy Spirit descending upon the Son of God. It, it was the event, the forerunner, where the forerunner could confirm to everyone around him, I myself have seen and I testify, this is the Son of God all righteousness had to be fulfilled. John had to fulfill his prophetic ministry as an office of prophet, prophet. This is the one he says. He's the one I've seen him. And in a marvelous display. I don't even know if we can imagine what it looked like. John immersed Jesus under the water. And we see in Matthew 3, verse 16, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Could there be any question as to the unmatched Greatness of Christ? Who else has this ever happened to? We've had some good baptisms out here. Nothing like this. Gerald, you remember any like this? Who else has this ever happened to? Nobody. Not even an angel has received such a confirmation. Hebrews 1.5 asks, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, God says, And let all the angels of God worship him. No created thing is to receive worship. Don't be misled by the word firstborn here that gets misused. In Hebrew, firstborn does not necessarily refer to origin. It refers to the status and position of authority in a house. The firstborn was the heir to the father's estate. Jesus is the heir to the kingdom of God with the highest status in God's household. He is the Son who has inherited the world. And in Hebrews 1 5, uh, the firstborn we're told is God. Worship Him. This is why God says, let all the angels of God worship Him, referring to the Christ. In Scripture, who receives worship? God, that's it. Only God. No created thing is to receive worship. When the Apostle Peter entered the house of the Roman centurion, named Cornelius, Acts 10, verse 25, Cornelius met Peter and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up saying, Stand up, I'm too just a man. We don't worship men. In Acts 14, when the crowds in Lystra began to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods, because they would healed a lame man. Paul and Barnabas, they were horrified. We don't worship men. We know from Scripture, only God receives worship. When created things receive worship, that's where you get Romans chapter 1. That earns the wrath of God idolatry. Yet throughout Scripture we see Jesus, not only in Hebrews chapter 1, throughout Scripture He is worshipped. He's glorified. He's not just a man. He is a man, but He is the God-man. It's because Colossians 2 verse 9 declares for in Him, meaning in Christ, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form that is Christ. And in John chapter 1 verse 1 speaking of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, it's correctly read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, capital G. Jesus is the eternal son of God who came and dwelt in bodily form. There's another reference in our passage in Matthew chapter 3 Uh, of God appearing in a bodily form. Who would that be? God the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, verse 16, the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting or resting on Jesus. Luke tells us during this event, the Holy Spirit too, was visibly seen in bodily form. There is great discussion about that. What is this bodily form? People talk about that. What exactly did it look like? Um, But we know that the Holy Spirit was seen in some bodily form. We know that the Holy Spirit, He descended on Jesus like a dove. That implies gracefully and gently, did the bodily form also look like a dove? and Not just descended like a dove. I think probably. We can't be certain in the, in the original script, but it probably did look like a dove. You know, The spirit is said to have rested and remained on Jesus. So I, I don't think it was like a Sumo wrestler or anything, right? It wasn't a man. the Holy Spirit didn't appear as a man. How would you rest on Jesus' shoulder or wherever he rested on his head? The Holy Spirit, He probably had the bodily appearance of a dove. Let's not get carried away with that. This is the only place in Scripture where we see that. Some people take that and get very carried away with it. And Scripture portrays the Holy Spirit as a He. The Holy Spirit is a He. Not an it, folks. Not an it. The Holy Spirit is clearly a person. John promises or Jesus promises him in John 14:16 I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you the Holy Spirit is a he. Clearly, it's a he. Jehovah Witnesses, they go nuts over this passage. They go nuts over it. I got, a, um, I got approached in Winn-Dixie off Port St. Lucie Boulevard by a Jehovah Witnesses, Witness as I was getting in my pickup. And she came up to me and, and started talking about the Spirit as a, as a force. I said, the Spirit isn't a force, it's a he. She goes, show me that in the Bible. Well, she didn't realize it. I reached over and she didn't see. I grabbed my Bible. Unfortunate day for her. Open it right up to John chapter 14, 15, 16, again and again. He, Him, He, Him. She got furious. Then she went away. They refer, uh, refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. As a thing The only thing I know referred to as thing is that hand in the Adam's family. Remember that? They called that thing. They don't view him as a person, but a force. You know, I would suspect in all that we know from Scripture about he and him and the Holy Spirit being represented in the masculine form, I would suspect the Holy Spirit finds being called in it a bit insulting. We need to be cautious about that. I know we slip up from time to time. God is graceful and forgiving. John fourteen, twenty six, there Jesus says, But the helper, again, the Holy Spirit, calls him right out by name, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. Again he notice the distinction as we continue here between Father, Son, and Spirit, as I read John fifteen, verse twenty six. Jesus is speaking. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, listen to this, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. One more, John 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you spirit proceeds from the father jesus sends him to us jesus uh, finishes by saying and he when he comes will convict the world of uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment holy spirit is a person it's he scripture uh, consistently provides a very clear distinction between father son and spirit the spirit whom proceeds from the father and whom the son sends to us the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, while defrauding the church, Peter asked Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. From the earliest beginnings, the church has recognized the person of the Holy Spirit as God. The church has always recognized the Son as God. Finally, the Father is also God to whom the Son prays and perfectly submits. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. God has to be God. God the Father. We can go on and on throughout Scripture, folks. We can see the distinct members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them is portrayed as omniscient, meaning all-knowing. Each of them is portrayed as omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Each of them is portrayed, each member of the Trinity is portrayed as omnipresent, meaning everywhere. They all display the attributes of God. They all are God. Yet they are also distinct in personality and function. Here at Christ's baptism, all present on this day as we look in Scripture, this is what Scripture reveals. Not having a word even to adequately describe the greatness of God in this way, Christians have historically referred to this, this marvelous phenomenon as the Trinity. Jesus comes up out of the water. Jesus is physically there. The Holy Spirit in bodily form rests upon Him. And a voice of God the Father proclaims from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We worship a Trinitarian Godhead. One true God, eternally coexisting in perfect harmony as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, God has never been lonely, folks. People ask that. Has God ever been lonely? No. He's never been alone. In himself, he is perfect. Jesus requested to be baptized through immersion. That's the word baptized. Baptizo means is uh, to immerse. Uh, there's never a prescription in the Bible for an unbeliever to be baptized. There's no prescription for that. Actually, you go to Acts chapter 10 and uh, Peter says to the, to the household of Cornelius when they received the Holy Spirit, he says, well now then, who can forbid baptism? Who can forbid water? It appears as though Peter would have forbid water had there not been evidence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was baptized through immersion. He went into the water. As we place our trust, our faith in him, we ought to follow him. In the water and identify with him as he identified with us. Water baptism is reserved for believers. For believers. We sometimes refer to it as an ordinance. You hear that word used. Some denominations call it a sacrament. You may have been incorrectly taught at one time or another uh, that the root word of sacrament means making a sacrifice. Uh, That is an error. That is an error, but it continues to be propagated. The word sacrament is derived from the Latin term sacra, which means holy, set apart, sacred. That's what it means, set apart. Sacred means set apart to God as holy. It's used to describe God's people who are holy and set apart. We are saints, we are sacred, we are set apart to God. God. The ceremony of holy baptism, it is sacred. It is set apart for God's people. Only for God's people. It's not for everyone. Therefore, the usage of the term sacrament, it's not heretical uh, or inappropriate when understood correctly. When understood correctly. When a whole bunch of baggage is attached to it, there can become problems. But it's not heretical. Heretical. Baptisms are sacred, they are Trinitarian. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always even till the end of the age. Our baptisms are Trinitarian. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now to serve... uh,